Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I'm still on my mission to read every single email that people have sent through the website before the end of the year. Let's get to it. Anonymous patron, she says, could you talk a bit about attachment theory and how it relates relates to pets? I don't fully understand it, but I would love to know what the benefits are and if it can help from healthy attachments and other aspects of life. End of email. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to answer this as quickly as possible, but I believe, and there's not a lot of research on this, but there's some, that our attachments to our pets are the same virtually as they are to uh, to humans, to potentially. You know, some people treat their pets like, not like other attachments. You know, when I was growing up, for example, we had outdoor cats that I was really attached to, but my parents just thought of as like, where's that cat? Do we even have a cat? It was very much of an afterthought. But uh, other people are like me and my wife, Stacy, and our dogs and other animals that we've had over the years have been absolutely other family members (laughs) that we love and have relationships with and get a lot of attachment security with. You know, when you reach out to your cat and your cat snuggles with you. It It's absolutely emotionally gratifying. That's why we have them. I mean, it's obvious that these animals are a drain on our life. They, they take away our money and food and space and time. And, you know, they're, they're, they don't give us anything. You know, they don't, most of our animals, our pets don't hunt for us or work for us or carry things for us. It's like, it's all downside. So what are we getting out of it? Well, obviously, we're getting a relationship out of it. We're getting an attachment out of it. We're getting someone that we can take care of, someone who's there for us, someone who cuddles with us, someone that we can have physical affection with, someone that we can play with. And it, you know, in the same way that you have other humans like that. And uh, there's nothing pathological about it. It's totally fine. Can one be too dependent on animals and uh, because of you know bad experiences with humans, you know maybe I don't know. I I don't want to jump to that conclusion. I, I think it's possible for someone to live alone and have uh, one or more pets and maybe get all their attachment needs met. Met. I don't know if I've ever said that before. So, and in the same way that when an animal rejects us, if we're needy of the animal, it you know it hurts. And the animal, the animals that we choose to let into our homes are bred or uh, evolved themselves to become similar to humans in terms of at least their behavior regarding their attachment. Dogs in particular, cats as well, but, and there's been a lot of research on this, you know, is your animal really attached to you or are you just a means to an end? And I find that uh, uh, when I read all the research, it's obvious that the dogs and most of the cats really bond to particular humans. Uh, again, particularly dogs, and uh, it, but you'll hear, hear people say like, "Oh, my dog doesn't. Dogs don't love people. That's just anthropomorphizing." They're, they, of course, they just want you for their food. For years, I had a robot, you know, a, a feeder feed my cats, and so they didn't associate me with food at all. And yet, they loved up on me. And when I came home, they meowed and they were happy to see me and they wanted to hang out with me and they liked playing. You know, it, I had nothing to do with their food and and. Uh, and they absolutely bonded with me. Anyone who's had animals knows this to be true, and it's obvious. And anyone who, like, poo-poos that, I find it's like you must never have lived with a dog or a cat that loved you, <laughs> and I feel sad for you. Anyway, next email. 
All right, this next email is from Anonymous Annual Patron. She wrote a fairly long email, but the main question that she's getting at is, uh, quote, how can someone feel a lot of empathy in some situations but have very impaired empathy in others, end of email. Yeah, I mean, this is a complicated topic, and I think the first thing I'll say is that empathy is complicated and people are complicated. And when you have a situation, you, you described anonymous and annual patron how he really hurt your feelings in a situation. He didn't seem to really understand it. But in other situations, he could be very caring. And I think that there's this um, general discourse among lay people and maybe among clinicians as well to some extent that if someone exhibits a lack of empathy, there must be something pathologically wrong with them. And they, there must be a diagnosis associated with that. And that that's an oversimplification and, and not it's it's probably not usually true. If you come across someone that exhibits lack of empathy, uh, the chance that you'll be able to diagnose them based on that is pretty slim. So there's that. I just want to because I think that a lot of people, oh, they must be a narcissist or it must be a sociopath or something. It's like, well, they could be. Or they have dependent pers personality disorder. People with dependent personality disorder, not always, can actually have a lot of um, impairment to their empathy because they're primarily focused on other people taking care of them. And they don't really even understand that they impact other people. Or they just are having a bad day. Or they, and as you describe in your email, they have avoidant attachment and they're not in touch with their feelings. When you're not in touch with your feelings, you're definitely not in touch with other people's feelings. Or you have traumas or schemas that are being triggered in a moment. There's a lot of reasons why someone in one instance would have seemingly no empathy and even report it, maybe even say like, yeah, I don't even think I registered that I hurt other people. And in other situations where they absolutely do have empathy, in most cases where people exhibit lack of empathy, in other contexts, they will exhibit empathy. All right, this next email is from anonymous annual patron, she, or no, sorry, annual patron Diana from Louisville says, can you explain panic attacks and parent, parenthesis or parenthesis? I think what you mean, uh, Diana, is parents, uh, paresthesia. Um, not parenthesis, but I could see the the, the, the confusion there. Um, so uh, paresthesia is a sensation of like numbness or tingling in your extremities or in your body. And sometimes there's a reason for that, like a, a neurological problem, nerve problem, or sometimes it's nervousness or stress or something. Anyway, so annual patron Diana from Louisville says, can you explain panic attacks and paresthesia? I just experienced panic attacks the last several days. I really thought I had something neurological going on and that I was going to die of a stroke or heart attack. I went several days having paresthesia, which would trigger full-blown panic attacks. When I went to see my doctor, she said I had classic signs of panic. Can you explain why we have panic attacks and how it affects our physiology and our emotional response? End of email. Yeah. So in brief, and I've talked about panic attacks a lot. I, I suffered from panic attacks when I was younger uh, for many years and actually becoming a therapist and learning about panic and anxiety and therapy. I actually cured myself of my own panic attacks. But the panic attacks I had were rough. I mean, when people talk about, oh my God, I had a panic attack. I was so scared. I was, I was watching a horror movie and I had a panic attack and it, I'm like, did you have panic? Attack? Well, yeah. They're like, yeah, it was so scary. And I'm like, no, no, no. Panic attacks are, are so all consuming 
physiologically and psychologically. It is, it's intense, and there's a good chance that you've never actually experienced a panic attack. You might have had high anxiety before, but panic attacks are really something else. I had a panic attack that lasted for a couple days, and just imagine that. Just imagine like a couple days where your your body is more scared than it's ever been in its life for two days. You know, people who talk about an anxiety attack, they'll talk about like, oh my God, I was so nervous for five minutes. And it's, you can have a panic attack that lasts five minutes. Anyway, the point is, is that panic attacks are rough. And Dana, you're saying that you had some panic attacks over the last several days and you had tingling sensations, I think is what you're talking about in your body. And it made you feel like you were having a stroke or a heart attack. And that's usually what will uh, provoke a panic attack is a, phys- a physical sensation. And without going into details, there's a fair amount of research demonstrating that people who pay attention to their body a lot, you know, some there seems to be a dial of personality, like a spectrum of personality, where some people are very aware of their body, you know, when their body has a tingling sensation or when they have to go to the bathroom or when they're hungry or when they're cold. They they're really sensitive. They might even be more sensitive just neurologically in general. But at the very least, there's some people that notice their body a lot. And there are other people who, who are lower on that spectrum and don't really notice what's happening in their body. So if you match up someone who notices their body pretty well and they're very neurologically sensitive and they're prone to anxiety, then it can and they might have the biological disposition for anxiety and panic, then it that's what will cause panic attacks is because you're uh, sitting there and all of a sudden you, you just feel something kind of weird, like a tingling or, an, or a pain in your chest or a headache or your vision goes a little funny or, you know, something, something weird happens, vertigo. And then the anxiety, the interpretation kicks in is I'm having a heart attack or I'm going to die or, you know, and this, this panic sets in and it's utter, utter panic. The whole body just flips out. And then there's a feedback loop because the more stressed out we are and the more focused we are on the tingling or the heart attack sensations, uh, uh, psychogenically, we can actually uh, cause or exacerbate symptoms like let's say you have a a tight a tightness in your chest that is really it's not related to a heart attack and it might not even be related to anything it's just like a random physical you know our bodies just do weird things sometimes or at least we don't know why it does a lot of things that it does so let's say you have a you know non-heart attack related tightness in your chest that's just it's barely perceptible you know you just feel it like a little bit and then, boom, you interpret it as I'm having a heart attack. And then, you, and then you flip out. And now what happens is your brain goes into fight or flight in this very panic way. And you can't think anymore because your blood is draining away from your higher brain. And uh, because you need to run, you know, fight or flight is a tiger is about to kill you. And you got to fight. You got to run. And. We don't need to do high math. We don't need to think about things very much. We just have to run or fight. That's all we got to do. And so it makes it so that the individual going through it, they can't really think through it very easily. In fact, it makes it practically impossible to, to, for the individual to be like, do I, maybe I'm just having a random feeling, <laughs> you know, like there's no ability to reflect on what's happening. The, the train is left to the station, you know, and it's physiological. It's automatic. It doesn't 
PTSD panic attacks or panic or uh, triggering trauma triggering can kind of be similar to this. It's not the same, but, but anyway, so you can't think all your blood is rushing to other parts of your body and your brain starts to become very convinced that something's wrong and you're very stressed out. Well, our, our brains can cause our psychologies can cause physiological problems happen in our body. We understand that the mind body, uh, you know, differentiation is meaningless. Our mind is our body and our body is our mind. And when we're stressed out, we can actually create psychogenically what some people call psych- psychosomatically symptoms in our body. So we feel a little sensation. The train leaves the station, fight or flight, total panic. Then we're focusing on our chest and our stress actually causes pain to exist in our chest then we remember oh yeah if you get pain in your left arm then that means you're having panic attack and then psychogenically you actually subconsciously create pain in your arm you don't misperceive you actually create uh inflammation or some kind of nervous system problem in your left arm that actually sends uh, pain signals back up to your brain and so on and so on and it's real and so a lot of these people end up in the doctor's office and the when the physicians look you over and they do all the tests and everything and they find, well, there's nothing wrong with you, but you know, it sounds like you might've had a panic attack. I don't know the percentage, but it's a pretty high percentage of people who end up uh, in doctor's offices complaining about heart attacks are actually only suffering from panic uh, attacks. Now, panic disorder is awful, but you shouldn't be in the ER. You should be talking to a specialist in psychotherapy and, and possibly taking meds for it. But really, you need psychotherapy because that's the best. Like for me, I cured my panic without any drugs. I, I did it completely with essentially cognitive therapy. But um, So there's that. Having said all that, there are a lot of people who are suffering from legit physiological problems. They go to the doctor. The doctor can't figure out what it is, and they just say it's a panic attack when in reality it is something physical. So there's that too. But you say, can you explain why we have panic attacks? Well, like I said, it's, it's a mixture by – we don't really know why. Some people are born this with a disposition. Some people are neglected when they're growing up that makes them prone to anxiety because they were kind of a, – chronically afraid and alone growing up or traumatized or triggered or, you know, something like that. And you say how it affects our physiology and our emotional response. Oh, I, feel, I feel like I kind of did that. Next email. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, I was wondering if you could talk about how perfectionists can become enraged when they feel that others aren't putting in as much effort into getting things done as well as they are. I get, I get extremely upset at my partner I got extremely upset at my partner, and I'm a perfectionist, for talking to one of my students without consulting with me about its ethicality and what boundary violations they could be crossing. Being a person who was consistently on time for things might make them incredibly angry when other people are late. To other people, it might seem that perfectionists are too anal or annoying and that they need to just relax, but to a perfectionist, relaxing is never an option. Do you have any thoughts on this? Have you observed something similar? End of email. Yeah, so basically what an honest patron is saying is that she is a perfectionist and she gets really upset when other people do things that challenge her um, hopes for things being in order and that we don't often talk about the rage that some perfectionists can exhibit. And, you know, I did a whole deep dive on perfectionism 
and you can listen to that if you're a patron, I believe. Eventually, I'll probably rerun it. But and it's pretty complicated. But you know, when I looked, when I first started looking into perfectionism, I thought, I, I, you know, when I was first prepping on the deep dive, I remember thinking, oh, this will be pretty easy. But I was looking at all the research, I w- and then I started thinking about it more, and I realized that perfectionism is like a really complicated, diverse topic. There's a lot of different dimensions to it. Like, for example, one dimension is do you have self-esteem or not? If you have perf- – so perfectionism in a nutshell is striving for high standards. You you want – you hold yourself to a real uh, – uh, to doing things very well. Uh, and you like things to be in order and you don't like to screw things up. So – but essentially you just – you have really high standards for – yourself and or and or other people if you have low self-esteem and you have high standards for yourself then whenever you make a mistake you're going to hate yourself and you're you know you're you're going to mess thing, something up at work and you're going to be like yeah there it is i'm a failure whereas other people who aren't perfectionistic when they make a mistake and they have low self-esteem they'll just be like yeah well whatever but if you're if you hold yourself to a high standard and you don't meet it then it can ruin your life. It can make you depressed and anxious and you know hate yourself even more. There's all sorts of bad things when you match up perfectionism with low self-esteem. But if you have good enough self-esteem, like I do, and you're a perfectionist, then it actually works in your favor. You are actually you know a very goal-oriented, and you push yourself to succeed. And when you do achieve something, you actually feel really good about it. You get a lot done you uh, have good outcomes you know when someone hires you you actually deliver and that that kind of stuff so per, so perfectionism in, in and of itself it has to be considered within the context of everything else uh, within the person's personality the other dimension that i like to think about is where the perfectionism is applied so some people have high personal standards and that's what i've been talking about thus far you can be perfectionist, perfectionistic about your own outcomes. You, when you make, when you bake a cake, it has to be perfect. When you, you know, do yard work, it has to be complete and it has to look good. When you wash the toilet or when you do, um, when you make a an art thing, <laughs> it had. Well, it's like for example, with me and Alberto, we talk about this sometimes. We're both perfectionistic when it comes to music, but he has something that gets in the way of him actually achieving things in the past. Not so much. Uh, well, I think he still does, but so we're both, both perfectionistic, but given my personality makeup, I actually still complete musical projects, even though I'm never satisfied with them when I complete them. I, in fact, when I listen back to past musical projects that I've recorded, I always cringe. I'm like, Oh, that's there's That should have been changed. That should have been changed. Whereas with Birdo, his perfectionism actually grinds him to a halt such that most of the time he never puts any of his music out there. So there's that. But anyway, um, high high personal standards is, is one type. Another is a preference for order and organization. So this, you could say, is conscientiousness, but also could, you know, uh, taken to an extreme, become really debilitating, you know, on the OCD spectrum, if you will. But so that's another type of perfectionist. And another type of perfectionist is concern for other people. Um, sorry, let me back up here. I think I'm reading from the wrong list. Um, 
sorry, backing up. <laughs> I was reading from the wrong list. Okay, so there's uh, erase everything I just said over the last couple of minutes. There's self-oriented. Per, um, this is the Hewitt multi-dimensional perfectionism scale. So de- developed by Hewitt and Fleet in Flett in 1991. So you have three types. You have self-oriented per- perfectionism. I already talked about that. You have other-oriented perfectionism. This is unrealistic standards for other people to be perfect. And of course, this would be problematic, right? It could be abusive to, to hold other people to a high standard is not fair, right? Um, because it's unrealistic. And then the third type is socially prescribed perfectionism. So this is when you feel like you have, when you have to be perfect for other people. Think of if you are um, a woman of a particular cultural pocket and you feel like your skin has to be flawless and your body has to be flawless and your hair has to be flawless, even though for yourself, you don't really care. But because of your undifferentiation or oppression or the way you're treated, you have internalized this perfectionism. You don't really care about how you look or you kind of care, but not that much. But you feel like you have to be perfect because society makes you feel or if your parents are forcing you to be perfect that kind of thing so there's self-prescribed perfectionism which is the one i have there's other prescribed where you're controlling other people and making them be perfect and then there's socially prescribed perfectionism and i i like that distinction as well but what you're talking about um anonymous patron is the rage part of this is that you know like for instance you're saying that your partner, uh, see, my partner for talking to one of my students, my partner talked to one of my students without consulting me. And so I'm guessing what happened to you was you have this, uh, and you're framing it as perfectionism of he broke a rule. You know, I'm a, so you're really perfectionistic and uptight about following rules and about not getting in trouble. So that, then that's where the nuance comes in because is that perfectionism or is is that self-oriented perfectionism? Is it other-oriented perfectionism or is it socially prescribed perfectionism? Are you, do you want to be perfect about the ethicality of your job or do you are you so terrified of being judged by others that you feel like you have to be perfect to live up to other people's standards? You know, it so all that has to be kind of sifted through because for me, I'm okay with my perfectionism. I don't try to get rid of it. Uh, I like it. I use it. I, I hone it. If you will, this podcast, for example, when I first started making it, I wasn't very good at podcasting for the first seven years, but I was such a perfectionist that it made me work really hard to make the podcast episodes listenable, even though I wasn't a very good podcaster. I had to listen. I would listen. I would record the episodes and I would listen back to them several times and edit like minutia, little ums and you knows and uh, stumbles and this kind of thing. I I would, I would edit all that out and I would move sections around. And so my perfectionism in the podcasting career path for me, actually, I think kind of helped me. It helps me learn, kept me dedicated. I, I hope it you know produced a better product in the beginning and 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 to some extent still does. So I'm so it's not that perfectionism is bad, but what you're talking about is when you get real angry and uh, or other people get angry when they're being perfectionistic and it's not a good idea. 
So um, you're saying, do I have any thoughts on it? I feel like I already got over that. Uh, have I observed something similar? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you have, so f- for me, uh, I can be this way too, but if I am balanced and differentiated, I can, I can see the bigger picture, you know, like I, Oh, <laughs> uh, well, what's up? Uh, well, a humorous, humorous example is when I see signs that have apostrophes that shouldn't be there or, uh, you know how gas stations have that, those, those signs that have letters on them, uh, like uh, interchangeable letters. What's the, like, It'll say like fifty percent off, and it'll be these these letters that they put up with with those big poles. I hope you know what I'm saying. Well, one of the things that will drive me bananas is when they put letters upside down, like an S. the The shading is is such that even though the S will look like an S if it's upside down, it's supposed to be oriented a certain way because the shading on the S is supposed to be a certain way. Do you know what I'm saying? Anyway. I will see stuff like that and it'll make me upset. <laughs> I'll go like, I'll, I'll, I'll have this tiny bit of motivation urge to go into the store and say, can you give me the poll? Cause I need to change that S around. Cause it's back. It's upside down or something like that. K's are sometimes upside down anyway, but because I'd like to think I'm differentiated enough, I go, well, it's not important. And in the grand scheme of things, who cares? And I'm probably the only person that cares that's driving on this road. I don't know. So, you know, that's a humorous example, but like with your partner talking to one of your students without consulting with you, um, it makes sense that you would be upset. But if your perfectionism is engaged and you're freaking out because he did something that kind of screwed up your perfect record or something, and you flip out and ruin your relationship temporarily because you're hyper focused on your perfectionism out you know goal in life the value of of being perfect without thinking of the bigger picture which is i need to have a good marriage or maybe it's not even that big of a deal that's that's what we need to do we need to be differentiated we need to be in our perfectionism at the same time of zooming out and looking at our perfectionism from afar and the rest of ourselves and the, and everyone else involved. And so that we don't make mistakes. All right. This next email is from patron Lisa from sun city, California. She says, as my children grew and left home, I began to collect things. And I wonder at what point uh, does the collector turn into a hoarder? End of question. Yeah, so I've done episodes on hoarding disorder before a couple, I believe, with my colleague, Jennifer Sampson McNamara, who specializes in hoarding disorder. Her research was on that. She actually founded a uh, a clinic uh, consortium in Tacoma, Washington, uh, called The Hoarding Project, I believe it was called. Anyway, it's still around. And uh, I had her on the podcast a number of times to talk about it, so you can go into the archives and listen to that. But hoarding... In a nutshell, when it becomes a disorder is when it becomes a problem. So if, for example, you love to collect little Santas or something, and you just, you buy every day, you're online for a couple hours on eBay searching for Santas, and you buy a couple Santas every day, and every day shipments are coming, more Santas, and you're house is starting to look a little cluttered. You're having a hard time trying to figure out where you're going to put it. Um, 
as as long as your work is still okay and your job is you know your relationships are still okay and your health is still okay and you're not completely ruining yourself financially then it's fine you just have a a a minor obsession with santas and from the outside it might look like you're a quote-unquote hoarder but if it doesn't cause any problems in your life then it's not a disorder it's just something that you do so in the same way that if you gamble for example and you you love to gamble and you you think about gambling and you let's say even you gamble every day but you're able to pay, pay your bills you're able to put food on the table your your mortgage is fine you still have your retirement uh, your relationships are okay um, you know maybe your partner isn't super enthusiastic about the fact that you lose some money sometimes but you know it's not the end of the world you you have separate finances or something then you don't have a gambling problem. You gamble a lot, but you don't have a gambling problem. From the outside, someone might say, you have a gambling problem, but um, not according to the definition. Now, what do we? What constitutes a problem? What constitutes, what's, where is exactly that threshold? Well, it's an amorphous construct uh, and it's opinion-based. And in my field, there's a lot of people that like to think it's, a, you know, it's this really concrete thing between non-disorder and disorder but it really isn't and it's it's in the eye of the beholder so so let's say that you start getting a lot of santas and let's say that two of your bedrooms you know your children grew up and left home let's say two two of your kids bedrooms are completely filled to the brim with santas and that you can't use those rooms for anything else well is that a problem well, some people, some clinicians might say, well, we're getting there. Other people might say, no, I mean, or they might just ask you, is it a problem for you? And you'd probably say like, no, it's fine. So there's a, there's a gray zone there. Having said that, people who suffer from, from hoarding disorder, it's obvious that they have a problem. People who have hoarding disorder, if yeah, I'm sure you've seen the TV shows or the news clips or something, it is astonishing what's going you know the amount of stuff that they hold on to and how irrational it is that's what makes it a disorder disorders are typically pretty pronounced you know when you have panic disorder for example it's not just like mild anxiety or temporary anxiety it's 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 completely debilitating hoarding disorder uh that you know typically when we're talking about someone who's diagnosed with it it's severe having said that there you know there's a spectrum like i said so the key is, is, is it ruining my life? Is my, you say, you know, you're collecting things. Is it, and so don't worry about, is it hoarding or is it collecting? Because it, it's a similar thing when people say like, am I drinking uh, socially or am, I an, or am I an alcoholic? And those words are so fraught with so many different things. The key is, is it ruining your life? even a little bit. Now, if it's ruining your life just a little bit and you can kind of keep it at that level and you're okay with that, then you're at least you're looking at it honestly. But the, the other thing about hoarding disorder is that there are, there are schemas and cognitions and beliefs that drive the hoarding that are disordered. For example, typically someone with hoarding disorder believes that to let go of something is to do something very horrible. And all of us can kind of relate to this, right? And I think this is why a lot of people 
start wondering if they have hoarding disorder. Like, do I have hoarding disorder? Because I think all of us can relate to the feeling of, should I give this to the secondhand store? Should I, should I throw this away? I haven't used this in five years. Do I need it? And, 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 and you just have this, um, you know, dilemma. And for a lot of people, they just hold on to it. And then their garage fills up with a bunch of useless crap. And then they wonder, how come I can't get rid of stuff? You know, I think that, you know, it's pretty normal. And in all likelihood, you don't have hoarding disorder. Because the people with hoarding disorder, it it's that belief, like, I better hold on to it, ramped up times 100. It is intense. The amount of um, irrationality they have around things is is pathological it's it's on the level of almost being schizophrenic you know it's it's delusional this idea of like because because you 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 come to them and 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 jennifer sampson mcnamara would do this she would go to the homes and with teams and talk to these people and by the way the way that you treat them is to take it very slow you never just come out like a tv show they clean it out research shows that within i think even just a few months the hoarding will be back and it'll be worse than it was before they did the clean out. Meaning that the house is completely filled with stuff again, because the problem isn't the stuff. The problem is the psychology. The problem is the person has a a mental disorder that needs to be treated. You it's like, um, you know, coming over to someone's house who is an alcoholic and just taking all the alcohol out of the house. Well, they're just going to buy more alcohol, you dummy. (laughs) So it's the same with hoarding disorder. You need to take it very slow. People are often coming from a traumatic place. Uh, Often it's it's a trauma response. They were four years old and poor and being abused, and they just locked in this notion that things are going to protect them or something along those lines. And... And they just, you know, so when you go to these individuals and you have them look around their house and and it's obvious that 99.9% of this stuff should go and is, is complete junk anyway, uh, you say to them, you know, do you think this stuff should go? Like you just point to something you think, you know, do you think that, I don't even know what that is. It looks like a pile of, of gross things. Should we get rid of it? The person with hoarding disorder will be like, no, 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 I, I need that. You don't understand. Like, I, I need that. That's something I'm, I'm going to need. So it's it's often semi-delusional. So if you're not in that realm, then you don't suffer from hoarding disorder. Now, if not all people are that bad. But anyway, my point is, is that it when you're evaluating your own collection or non-pathological hoarding, just evaluate if it's what you really want and if it's what you want and and all the consequences of holding on to all this stuff or collecting all this stuff are cool with you then great you're fine but if you're uh, collecting like some people will collect compulsively meaning they're not really enjoying the process it's more of like a an itch that they have to itch so they're not doing it out of pleasure they're doing it out of desperation and so there's all that that would require or would, you know, uh, mean that therapy is in order. And if you're not sure, then obviously get a therapist by, you know, get an evaluation by someone that understands hoarding disorder well. All right, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. I want to do an OPP, an old patron praise for those patrons who signed up all the way back in June of 2019. 
and stayed patrons this whole time. We have Gabrielle from Seattle. We have Molly from London. We have Amanda from God knows where. We have Jay from Brooklyn, New York. We got Jennifer from Santa Monica. These are some great places. Seattle, London, Brooklyn, Santa Monica. We got uh, Leela or Layla from Williamstown, Australia. I, I don't know about that. But Alyssa, good old Alyssa from Yelm, um, a friend of mine. Fur from Los Angeles. Steve from Snohomish, a Snohomie Steve. Savannah from Seattle. Michelle from Australia, Brunswick East. And Andrea Basel, Czechoslovakia, I believe. Anyway, thank you so much for becoming patrons and staying patrons this whole time. Super cool of you. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. I'll just summarize here. They basically are saying that they have a lot of physiological and psychiatric problems, but their typical coping mechanism is to deflect and avoid when when other people ask them, you know, do they need anything? And so when they are suffering, so they're suffering, they're suffering, they're suffering, and then uh, they tend to avoid their problems, which I'm guessing signals to others that maybe they don't have problems. But then when they need support and help, other people don't respond very well. They don't, they don't jump to help. And so the anonymous patron is saying, how can I explain to other people that I need some patience and understanding? Well, one, you can just say it. I mean, uh, but I'm guessing that there's a barrier there. I'm guessing that there's some psychological schema or trauma that's making it so that you avoid and deflect, as, as you say. So I would go to therapy for that. And once you figure out what you're afraid of, because I'm guessing there's something you're afraid of. You're afraid of being dependent. You're afraid of being let down. You're afraid of being seen like a weakling or you're afraid that someone will discover that you're in need and they'll they'll uh, exploit you or you know something's going on there's some fear that needs to be healed from then uh and then it takes a long time you know uh, i've worked with people on this issue uh and it takes a long time it takes a long time to learn how to ask for help it seems so easy but for people who struggle with it it can take years and years to really get into the mindset and the habit Next email from patron Tara from Detroit. Tara, good old Tara. I was trying to remember your name. Was it on the air or off the air? And I was like, what was her name? I know she's in Detroit, and I know that the Lions are terrible, and I know she has a bunch of athletic pictures peoples on her workout wall. <laughs> so anyway, you wrote in uh, Tara, and he says, I have recently experienced the loss of my father, divorce, and a discovery of a history of trauma yet unrecognized. Well, chiming in here, Tara, I'm sorry, really sorry, a loss of your father, a divorce, and a discovery of a history of trauma. That's, that's a lot. You say, I should be very angry. I have been lied to, abused, and manipulated. I have a right to be angry, and honestly, I feel like it may, may help to be angry. Not feeling angry feels like I'm missing a step. I assume I am pushing it down or repressing it somehow for some reason. Am I correct in my assumption? Is anger a part of the healing process? Can I fully heal without it? End of email. Well, Tara, I don't know. Uh, it's not enough. I, there's no universals there, but I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't suppressing it. I mean, to be lied to, abused, and manipulated, 
yeah, that's a lifetime of anger right there. And if you don't feel any anger about it, then it, that lends itself to the conceptualization that you're suppressing it because of fear. You know, there's a lot of messages given to children that fear is not okay from various different angles. So uh, I work with a lot of people, particularly women, by the way, on anger. Uh, uh, for some women clients, I will spend 10 years and half of the therapy that we're doing is on them connecting with their anger. And, f and you know, because it seems like such an easy thing to do. It's just like, well, just be angry. Just connect with your anger. It's so much more complicated than that. There's so many voices that kick in. And physiologically, in the same way that, you know, I talked about how I, in the sixth grade, suppressed my, my tears such that I never cried again for a long time. So when I was 20 years old and I should be crying, I wouldn't cry because I physiologically got rid of the ability to cry. And it took me a long time to reconnect with my ability to cry. And I worked on it throughout my 20s and, and, and beyond. And now I cry at the drop of a hat. So in the same way, we can do that with anger. You can suppress, suppress, suppress such that it's even when you want your anger, it's really hard to access. But anger is a wonderful thing. And one of the things that I've talked with uh, my women clients is how wonderful and how powerful and how um, proactive and empowering anger can be and how you deserve to have anger. Because for a lot of people, and I think particularly women, are taught that anger is destructive that anger is to be a bully. Anger is to cause problems and conflict. And it can, but anger can also motivate you to seek justice. It can feel good and cathartic to recognize injustice and to viscerally feel the uh, associated emotions such as anger. For example, for me, I think on this podcast, you, you notice I get angry sometimes. Uh, not as angry as I get in my personal life, but uh, but you know, angry, and it it motivates me to to stand up for things and to say no. You know, you can't do that to people. You can't say that people that have emotions are wrong. You know, you'll you'll hear me yammer about stuff and and stand on a soapbox, and you know that's one of the manifestations of my anger. And if I didn't have, if I didn't feel anger, if I wasn't comfortable with my anger, I wouldn't have those kinds of conversations. I wouldn't even feel the injustice and I wouldn't fight for injustice. And a lot of women have experienced injustice and a lot of women are told they can't be angry, that there's, you know, they're a nasty bitch or whatever it is that they get called or they're, they're bossy, right? You know, you, oh, you're so bossy, you know, four-year-old girl who acts like a normal human being is called bossy. Anyway, so I imagine that you're on a long process to connect with your anger. Now, you also say, uh, is anger part of the healing process? Yeah, uh, maybe. I wouldn't say it's integral for everyone. And then you say, can I fully heal without it? Well, I don't think you're ever going to fully heal anyway, Tara. <laughs> uh, sorry to say that. but um, And I would say that if you are suppressing your anger, which we don't know, that, you know, a good percentage of your, heal of your healing would involve connecting with that for sure. But again, you know, talk with your therapist. 
right, this next email is from patron Natalie from Geneva. She says, would you have a bibliography or a few reading recommendations for an integrative approach to case conceptualization? End of email. Um, I'm not particularly good at bibliographies or recommendations, but I do have a lot of books on case conceptualization, and I thought I would just read all the books that I have about it. I have a book by Meyer called Bridging Case Conceptualization Assessment and Intervention. I have a book, book by Berman called Case Conceptualization and Treatment Planning. I have a book by... Uh, oh, I'm sure there's other books... <laughs> <laughs> There's psychodynamic case conceptualization. Uh, what is that called? Psychodynamic. I'm looking at my little database here. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, it's just terrible. Um, but you also talk about uh, in integrative approach. And there are books on integrative therapy that I can also look up in my stupid database. If I didn't close it, I could... Into grade. So every book and article that I have on, in my office, I have to have a database because it's, it's hard to find things. <laughs> but um, Case Approach to Counseling and Psychotherapy is a book that has that. Um, anyway, there's there's lots of books on integrative, but I'm just trying to find... Oh, Integrative Multi-Theoretical Psychotherapy uh, by Brooks and Harris. That's actually a pretty, that's actually, I recommend that book for any therapist, honestly. It, it's, um, I've talked about this book before, but it's called Integrative Multi-Theoretical Psychotherapy, Brooks Harris. The book, sum, it summarizes all the major umbrellas of therapy in this very concise, easy to, you know, a lay person reading this book would say, oh, I, I understand that concept and it, it lays out, you know, it'll say like family systems therapy and it'll give a couple pages of kind of the background and like the general premise. And then it lists all the interventions and the preferred outcomes and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I learned so much by reading that book. Anyway, I gave you a terrible answer. Natalie from Geneva. I'm sorry. I'm terrible at that. Next email from annual patron Jess from Utah. She says, Today my therapist brought up practicing giving myself wholeness and being able to feel whole. He tried to explain what it means to be able to feel whole, but maybe it's such a foreign concept for me that I just don't understand it. For some context, we were discussing how it feels like I'm never enough and how I'm a perfectionist with low self-esteem. Can you describe what it's like to feel whole and how to become more whole? End of email. Well, Jess, yeah, obviously I would really sift through this with your therapist because I, I could give you my impression of what your therapist meant by that, but I would really be shooting in the dark. So obviously I would, and it sounds like it's a pretty important thing that you and your therapist have to um, understand about each other. And this, this goes for any of you all out there. If your therapist ever says anything or does anything that confuses you and it's, you know, a question that you think about after session, it is your responsibility as a client to bring that up in therapy. You have to, if, it, if you think it's even remotely important for you to understand something that your therapist did that you don't understand, do not wait that you you when you sh as a client when you show up to you know therapy 
you have some responsibilities too. Obviously, the therapist has responsibilities, but you got to bring that up. If you don't bring it up, then you're just kind of wasting your money to some extent. You know, if your therapist is saying, uh, you know, a big goal I have for you is I, I need you to give yourself wholeness. I need you to be able to feel whole. And you're like, what does that mean? So, yeah, obviously dig down deep and say, look, I don't care how long it takes. It sounds like it's a very important thing to you as my therapist. I need you to really download what is in your head and my head. And therapists out there, you know, spend some time actually explaining things or, or put things in words that people understand. <laughs> because, Jess, when I hear this phrase, I, I really have no idea what he's talking about. Um, you know, you said, my therapist brought up practicing giving myself wholeness. Giving myself wholeness. Huh? Now, what I suspect, given the context that you gave, is that you feel as though you're not good enough. And what I think he's saying is, you need to recognize that you are good enough and uh, not always strive to be something else so that someone else will tell you you're good enough. I think that's what he's talking about, but obviously you would want to talk with him. All right, this next email, anonymous listener from Germany, she writes, is being indecisive a personality disorder? I get very excited about moving to one place and I feel like I made a decision. However, as I talk to other people, they give me different points of view, and it is making me confused again. Could these waves of motivation followed by indecisiveness, depression, and sadness be a personality disorder? Or am I just an indecisive person? End of email. Well, indecisiveness can be a component of a few different personality disorders, dependent personality disorder for one. Uh, but being indecisive or having a pattern of indecision doesn't necessarily mean that you suffer from personality disorder but uh, indecision it can also be a sign of lack of differentiation it could be a sign of lack of connection with the self which is often associated with a personality disorder so yeah i um or you just it just takes you a while to make a choice you know that's okay or you change your mind often It, it it really just depends on if it's causing you problem but but you say that you have waves of motivation followed by indecisiveness and then you get depressed and sad. So yeah, it sounds like something's going on there that is worth going to therapy for. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She asks, how can we help mental health clinicians better accept and understand the existence of dissociative identity disorder? End of question. Yeah. So uh, there's so much to say, and I've talked about this before. I, I've done whole deep dives on dissociation. I did a whole episode on TikTok and how, you know, people seemingly might be faking it and this sort of thing. Um, I was talking with some clinicians recently and I, I, I wasn't a professor. I was just a colleague and I didn't know these people that well. And long story short, the consensus among these clinicians was that dissociative identity disorder wasn't, was not a real disorder and that everyone presenting as it was either faking or it was some other disorder that was being confused with dissociative identity disorder. And I was really shocked by this. You know, these clinicians seemed really sure of themselves, and they seemed uh, to very much feel as though this was the consensus, that the consensus in our field is that dissociative identity disorder doesn't exist. And I find that to just be one of the dumbest things, you know, 
I, I've treated people with dissociative identity disorder. There's been tons of research demonstrating that dissociative identity disorder exists. Why is it in the DSM? Now, the DSM is not a flawless document, for sure, particularly over the years. But uh, when the authors put things in the DSM, it has to be uh, supported and demonstrated by mounds and mounds of research over the years. And dissociative identity disorder being in the DSM, of course, has decades and decades and mounds and mounds of research demonstrating that it is not only a thing, but it's a distinct thing because there are many things that people suffer from, but to get its own label, it has to be a distinct thing. Like there are different types of depression, but they don't get their own label in the DSM. It's all just subsumed underneath major depressive disorder or other or bipolar, or one of the other depressive disorders. But uh, why isn't dissociative identity disorder subsumed under, you know, other specified dissociative identity disorders? Because, it's its own distinct thing and enough people suffer from it that it justifies its own, you know, place in the DSM. So I do not understand. And as far as I can tell, there are people who I think there's many roads to clinicians thinking that it doesn't exist. One is that it's a pretty rare disorder. And so as a clinician, you might not either come across it or might not know you come across it. Most people with dissociative identity disorder, which I'll call DID from now on, most people with DID don't know they have DID. They, uh, you know, and listen to all my deep dives on it for more information on that. So there's that. The other thing is people with DID often have other disorders. You know, they have personality disorders or, you know, PTSD or other kinds of things that make it so that, any symptom of DID might be thought of as a symptom of some other diagnosis that they have. Because, of course, DID is developed early in life from massive, massive, horrible, horrible trauma. So you're likely to have a number of other diagnoses along with it. So that's one reason. Another reason is that there have been some famous cases of people faking it. And so there's that. Another reason is that I think statistically it has a higher prevalence rate of people faking it. Something like 10% of patients presenting with DID are faking it, which is higher than I think than other disorders. The other thing is that people don't understand that people fake all of the things in the DSM. You know, the fact that someone heard of a case of someone faking DID and then them saying, therefore everyone having DID is faking it, is a stupid argument because people fake major depressive disorder. People fake schizophrenia. There was a famous case of a mob boss, I think in New York City, who successfully for decades faked that he had schizophrenia when he never suffered from that. And it, it just was a smokescreen so that he could continue to, to conduct his illegal activities. Um, I don't know if that's apocryphal, but anyway, point is, is people fake everything in the DSM. That doesn't mean that the things don't exist. It doesn't mean that thing, people don't actually suffer from. Um, another factor, I think, is that there's a lot of lay people on the internet like saying a lot of things, and I think it's easier just to say, no, it's fake, than to say it's real. Another thing, I think, is that a lot of people are it's seemingly increasing the amount of faking that's happening online and on TikTok and stuff to get attention. It seems like that might be happening more. And when people see that, it just kind of 
makes them cringe as it does to me too. And if they were sort of on the fence about DID being a real thing, they're like, oh, obviously it's fake. I mean, look at all these people faking it, that kind of thing. I think another factor is that, and I've been a victim of this myself, that when you get burnt a number of times with things and you get tricked by people, then you develop this kind of coat of armor against things that might not be real. And, and you're skept- you're like overly skeptical, essentially. And I've, I find that there's a certain group of people that are like overly skeptical of anything that they've been told. And I think that that and the, the colleagues that I heard poo pooing DID, it seemed like they were coming from that place of like, I know better. You're not going to trick me. You know, this sort of person that's like that says, well, you know, that's a myth, you know, that, that kind of person. And I'm kind of that person, by the way. So I'm not degrading that kind of person, but, but yeah, it's, it's bizarre. You know, it's bizarre that people, because they've never treated someone with DID, they assume it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's like if you, you know, if you've never been to Paris and you've never seen the Eiffel Tower in person, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Every expert I know in trauma understands that DID is a real thing. Why? Because they study it and they've treated people with DID. The other thing that people will say is, well, how do you know if they're telling the truth, right? I mean, they, they could just be lying about, how do you know anyone has DID? Well, by that line of thinking, how do you know anyone has any mental disorder? You could fake everything. You could fake schizophrenia. You could literally... It could literally be possible that everyone who has ever suffered from major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety or schizophrenia, every one of those people could have been faking it. It would be extremely unlikely. It would be very difficult. It would be strange as to why someone would ruin their lives over something like that. But it's possible that any of the things in the DSM are faking it, including DID, but how do us clinicians and experts uh, believe that these things are involuntary is because when you actually treat these people, you see what happens and you realize that one, they do not benefit from the diagnosis of DID. One, two, most people who are diagnosed with DID are not, they don't present as having DID. They, they present as suicidal and depressed because of all the other problems in their life and, and associating and especially DID is extremely debilitating. Imagine waking up one day and you don't even remember the past four days and everyone's like, do you remember what happened yesterday? Like that would be really upsetting, right? Now, some people will say, well, there's strong evidence that DID is a thing because they've hooked people up to biological markers or fMRI scans showing that their different alters have different markers that they're different. And I find this evidence to be interesting, but not super compelling because you can have different brain scans and different physiological um, readings when you just change your mood. So I don't, we, we just, we don't have the ability to truly prove that DID exists in the same way that we don't have any way to truly prove that depression exists. But when you're ground level and you work with the people that I've worked with, and that other experts of trauma work with, there's no doubt that DID is a real thing. Now, can some people suffer from something that 
might be temporarily confused as DID. You know, some people will talk about how they will, they'll, their trauma will be triggered and they'll, they'll get real angry and violent and and they'll say like, it was like I was a different person and might the therapist go down a road of convincing the client that they have DID when they actually don't. Yeah, that happens sometimes, but that happens again with all the disorders. There are people who are not depressed who get convinced by incompetent therapists that they're depressed, or there are people who uh, have a personality disorder and they get convinced by their clinician that they don't have a personality. You know, there's, there's incompetence that happens, but that doesn't mean that DID doesn't exist. And it's, it's frustrating because one, I find that when people talk about DID not existing, they either have an agenda of some political agenda or something, you know, the way that Tom Cruise talks about how psychiatry doesn't exist or something, you know, or it's, it's harmful or it's a conspiracy. It's, it has that kind of, it's not that bad, but it has that kind of ignorance to me. The other thing is that it denies people, you know, people who have DID are some of the most suffering individuals on the planet. They have suffered so much difficulty and trauma and their dissociative identity disorder is a coping mechanism for that difficulty. And for clinicians to come along and mansplain that they don't actually have a thing and that they're just making it up, I find to be extremely distasteful. And I I find that it's like, hey, pal, how about you spend some time with actual people with DID and get back to me? How about that? All right, next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to go about getting premarital counseling. I think many people out there still think premarital counseling is a last resort before divorce. Even though I have a loving relationship and we currently communicate very well, I think everyone, including myself, in a committed relationship could benefit from premarital counseling. When should one seek premarital counseling? How should one broach the subject with your partner? How does one pair this with their own individual therapy? What kinds of questions should we be asking a therapist prior to choosing one? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. In in a perfect world, I would imagine that a lot of couples would go to therapy, couples therapy, not only premarital, but throughout their relationship, uh, even when things aren't going horribly wrong. Because every couple I know... Could use a session once a month at least, <laughs> if not more often. There, there's always something that someone did that kind of hurt your feelings. There's always something that you're worried about bringing up. There's always something that could be tweaked, especially when you have kids. There's always a conversation to be had about parenting. So, in a perfect world, everyone would go to couples therapy throughout their relationship periodically, whether that's once a month, once a week, one, you know, maybe they take a break for six months and they start back up. <clears throat> the couples that I've worked with over the years, that's what it's like. Um, even when we get things going pretty well for them, they still come in because there's always something to talk about. So there's that. Then you say, when should one seek premarital counseling? Well, I, I answer that question. How should one broach a subject with your partner? Well, I've talked about this before that you can't get someone to go to therapy if they don't want to. So don't get your hopes up. You know, it's a it's a question. You're asking, you're like, hey, I want to go to couples counseling with my partner, even though things aren't going horribly wrong. Um, 
And but the attitude you should have is my partner might not want to go and I'm just going to have to live with that. And that sucks, but that's my experience. Now, it doesn't mean you give up if they say no, but it does mean that you shouldn't get your hopes up. So, but you go to your partner and say, hey, you know, I love our relationship. I think we're, we're doing really well. And I just feel like if we went to premarital counseling that it might help us to make it even better or might help us to identify what we're doing well. You know, maybe that would help. Then you say, how does one pair it with your own individual therapy? Um, couples therapy pairs extremely well with individual therapy. Uh, uh, sometimes your therapists have to coordinate. Your last question, what types of questions would you ask the therapist prior to choosing one? Well, I would just ask the therapist, uh, I would tell the therapist what you're looking for. Say like, well, I'd like to work on this. Our relationship is going pretty well. Um, da, da, da. I give, you know, provide your situation in 30 seconds and then ask a therapist what they would do with you. And if they can answer that in a way that makes sense to you, then, you know, give them a shot. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. Uh, they say a recent, I had a recent attempt to seek a corrective experience, but it resulted in a very hurtful experience instead is the only path forward to just try again. End of question. Yeah. And, and they give a longer email, but I, uh, I essentially that's the question. And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Try again. Of course. Um, I don't know your situation. I don't know what you, the precise nature of what you should try again. I don't know if you should give it some time, but I find this question is based on the idea or I, I find this question to be teetering on the idea of do we really have to interact with others in order to have a corrective experience? And the answer is no. I mean, you can have corrective experiences with yourself or even with an idea. Like, say your mom dies and you go to her grave and you have a conversation with her and you imagine that she is looking down on you and is saying certain things to you. You don't know precisely what she's saying. You know, it's not like you're talking to a ghost, but you you just get this vibe like she wants you to feel okay about yourself or that your mom's proud of you or something that could be a creative experience. It could be argued that you're literally talking to nothing and you're just making stuff up in your head. And that is, or you're literally talking to the spirit of your mom. Either way, you're not involving another human on this planet and you could absolutely have a corrective experience. You can also have a corrective experience on your own where you take care of yourself, where you have self-compassion and, and you, you do positive self-talk, that kind of stuff. Those are all, all always corrective experiences that we do all the time. But to heal quickly and to some extent um, heal our working model of others, we have to interface with others. And and I know that sucks, and I've talked about this before, that for some people, they'll email me and they'll just be like, but I don't want to interact with, I don't trust other people. Things don't go well with other people. I, I, I don't, are you telling me that the only way for me to heal is to have corrective experiences with other human beings? But I don't want to. That's never gone well for me. And, I, you know, I don't know anyone's particular situation, but generally speaking, the answer is, yeah, I hear you, but that's the way it's got to be. It's like saying, I want to get over my fear of heights without actually facing my fear of heights. You know, in order to 
overcome one's fear of heights in order to cure yourself of the fear of heights, you have to do an exposure regimen that slowly exposes you to heights and eventually you can tolerate, you habituate to heights. It's similar to other human beings. If other human beings really stress you out in general because of the traumas you've gone through, the way that you can habituate to other humans and be, feel safe with other humans is to have experienced safety with other humans. And I know that's rough. And, you know, it sounds like you tried to engineer a corrective experience. You're like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Um, you know, my therapist or Kirk or someone was telling me to do this. So, okay, I'll fine. I'll, I'll try to have a corrective experience with someone. And then it didn't go well. And then you're like, well, wait. So the thing I'll say to that is um, if it were easy, then everyone, no one would have any relational traumas, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's rough. And I, I, I don't, I don't have any, um, you know, delusion that somehow this isn't hard. It's very hard. And the more relationally traumatized you are, the more in need of relational corrective experiences you need and the more fear you're going to have about exposing yourself to that. So, you know, it's rough. But yeah, the answer, the short answer to your question is, even though I try to, you know, have a corrective experience and it didn't go well, do I really have to try again? And the, the short answer is yes, but, you know, do it with therapeutic supervision. And that's where therapy comes in, because when people come to me, I uh, engineer a corrective experience with them as my clients, and I know how to make sure that it doesn't go poorly for them. And so when you're trying to engineer a corrective, particularly if you were particularly relational, tra relationally traumatized, if you're trying to engineer corrective experiences in the wild, uh, that, that has a lot of danger. And I won't go into the details on it, why. But I've talked about before that you could inadvertently create a situation that was doomed from the start because of your working models and because of your repetition compulsion. So that's where a therapist comes in because a therapist who understands corrective experiences can really resist the urges of falling back into old patterns that you're trying to recreate. All right. This very last patron email, annual patron Kim from Arizona says, Will you ever do a deep dive on schizotypal personality disorder? After having a psychotic break four years ago and being bounced around from doctor to doctor and being diagnosed as bipolar, schizoaffective, OSDD, and all this wild stuff, I asked my therapist what he thought my diagnosis was. He told me schizotypal personality disorder, and it seems to fit like a glove. I was wondering if you would ever do a deep dive on this one. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. All the personality disorders left on, you know, that I haven't talked about are you know, definitely on my short list of future deep dives. Schizotypal, um, schizoid, paranoid, I don't think I've done. Um, and I don't think I've done obsessive compulsive personality disorder either, or deep dive. But yeah, definitely schizotypal is on the list. And, you know, I'm glad that you found a therapist that seems to understand you. And schizotypal, in a nutshell, is very easy, particularly if you, have, if you had a psychotic break, is easily uh, misdiagnosed as other things. So, you know, I'm glad that you're getting the help you need. If you want to, Kim, you could email me kind of a full write-up at some point. I don't know when I'll get around to it, but um, I, I could put it in a doc. Because often it's helpful to have, you know, case studies of and people's experience with with these disorders to help the listeners understand. So you might be able to help me out with that. 
And along those lines, I have been really wanting to do a lot more deep dives. I feel like 2022 will be a year where I'll have the luxury to be able to do that. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Um, Pretty much every day of my life, I think about, okay, how can I get my life in order so I can start doing the deep dives that I want to get to? Like it's, it's, it's my mission in life for my own perfectionism, my own desire to please the patrons, my own desire to learn my own, my own just personal goals in life to do a lot more deep dives. So um, hopefully we'll get to that. So that is the end of my Google Doc that has everyone's email in it. If I didn't get to your email and you're a patron, it's possible that your email is in a doc for Rebecca episodes or Bob episodes or or Berto episodes. Or I didn't understand your question, so I just didn't include it. (laughs) Or Or you literally didn't ask a question. Some people will email in like a long description and there's no question in there. And so sometimes I, I can infer the question, but other times I'm like, uh, I don't really know what to say about this. The other thing is that remember that you got to keep these emails short <laughs> because I do not have time to read long, long emails. I will ask you for more information if I, if I need it. So um, if it's a super, super long email, sometimes it just gets deleted because I, I don't, I don't have the time to, um, to sift through everything. And it says clearly on the form, like, brief description one or you know one to three sentences or something like that and people will you know now many of you will say oh my god i'm so sorry i i droned on and on and you only wrote like five sentences you know it's not a big deal i'm talking about people that literally give me just pages and pages but and you know i understand it it's like people want to give me information but it says on the form uh, don't do that please <laughs> because it stresses us out. You know, it'd be one thing if we just got the me and Podwife. So the way this whole thing works is Stacy will, she gets the emails and then she uh, puts all the emails in these various different Google Docs that we share and stuff. And so it stresses her out too because she, she has to read the emails to figure out which doc to put it in. The other thing is, is she's not a therapist. So some of y'all are, you know, putting some, intense stuff in there that I can handle. But my, my wife sometimes, you know, she'll come around the corner crying, just being like, you know, cause she, she's just, she's not, she's a non-clinician. She's a regular human. And so when she reads some, and she's an empath, you know, empathetic person. So when she reads these emails, like it can really, um, be rough for her. You know, she recovers. She doesn't destroy her life, but <laughs> just some background on that. The other thing is, is that I, I, I was telling, my wife, we were walking the dogs a couple hours ago, and I was like, I'm almost done with all the Patreon emails. And she's like, no, you're not. I, I have hundreds of emails in the inbox that I've yet to put in the Google Doc. <laughs> so if you sent an email recently, uh, you know, they haven't been processed yet. I hope to actually do another episode in which I try to get to many of the non-Patron emails. So maybe I'll do that next time. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Mm-hmm.